I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's guest is Christian Delise. Christian is an industrial designer by trade and a problem solver by nature. He's worked in a variety of roles in international design studios for Toyota, Lexus, Forcia, Lamborghini, Porsche, Volkswagen, and this has included HMI design of advanced driver assistance systems, as well as interior cabin UX design development. And he's currently helping to build digital application tools for managing product ecosystems at Stanley Black & Decker. Also, he is the founder of Mode, which is a system model which aims to improve the lifecycle impact of cars and enable more agile implementation of new technologies. So interesting discussion, interesting background from Christian, kind of eclectic as as I just mentioned. And we talk about user experience, especially as we're introducing new technologies such as automation and connectivity and electrification. And then also talk about sustainability from a design perspective, which really interesting. And uh, I this is a, a diff- different place than I've gotten to in the podcast so far, and it's fun, fun to explore with Christian. I think we just scratched the surface in some areas, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it here for now in the intro. Please enjoy this conversation with Christian Delise. Today, I'm joined by Christian Delise. Christian, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think uh, two really interesting topics here that I haven't haven't dove too deep into. So user experience UX and as well as sustainable design, I think are, are two, yeah, like I said, very important topics, things I'm excited to explore here. I think you have some some really cool, relevant experience in, in this space. So would you mind setting the stage here and starting us off and just introducing yourself and a bit of what you uh, are working on? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name's Christian and... I've been, I come from the design field uh, originally. I was a car design nut my whole life. Um, so user experience and sustainable design is, are kind of two fields that I found myself growing into uh, over the course of my career. Uh, mm-hmm. I started out around 2010 
after industrial design school, um, I got recruited to work for Toyota and started with their interior team. Uh, we have we had a team based in Michigan, uh, and then I got the chance to go to Japan, work kind of in the belly of the beast. Uh, and interior design was was interesting uh, at the time because it was they were really ramping up on the quality and the fit and finish during that era, kind of post recession. Uh, people were really getting back into the to kind of the the romance of of design and and cars, and the industry was on the on the return. Um, and so that was a real, real rich experience. Um, and then from there, uh, I kind of wanted to branch out and do, do work that had a little bit more impact, uh, functionally, uh, with the human experience and with, with, with what cars really mean to people. Um, so after a period of working uh, with startups and different fields, such as medical, uh, I jumped back into the industry by way of the Volkswagen Group, which had a advanced research lab in Silicon Valley, uh, and that that was a an eye-opening transition to the, the more digitization. This was probably around 2018. Um, so yeah, that was that was great to kind of see the merging of all these uh, digital fields into the in-car experience. Yeah, awesome. And, and I think this, you mentioned uh, the, the human aspect and what cars actually mean to people, which uh, that, that phrasing is, is interesting to me. And I would appreciate, so industrial design, not something that I have much experience with. I, I think it's related in that, you know, I've done business development and marketing now in, in various capacities. Mm-hmm. And like the, this question of what are we actually doing here and what, what, what service or what experience are we actually providing is at the core of doing business development and marketing well. So I'd appreciate though, from, from your industrial design kind of user experience perspective, like how do you go about asking a question, solving a question and actually making design decisions based on that? Yeah, that's a great, uh, great start uh, because what I learned in industrial design, which is industrial design kind of evolved from the art of industry, right? So making, making things beautiful that are mass produced, making them ergonomic. Uh, and we, for the last century, we lived in a very physical world. So all, all marketing was done through the touch and feel, uh, of a product. And so that process of making something from scratch, uh, the, the investigation, if you will, into the research of the, the person that's going to use it, as well as how do you make the product and test the product, uh, both aesthetically and, and technically, like does the engineering fit? Uh, that was a traditional process that plugs right into, I found a lot of fields from digital media to, uh, to startups and, and any, any type of field you go, if you bring a process, uh, that's based on the user first, uh, I, I think you'll have a good chance of success. You will have a good empathy for what it takes to make the thing as well as to, to pitch it and sell it. Um, so I, I kind of, you know, over the years kind of took that process, broke it apart. And then the, the questions about how does it serve someone now, we're, we're now in a very screen-based world, a very like, digital world. Uh, and so it kind of shifted from what can you touch 
and, and C to, to how does that product interact back with you? And, uh, and I think we've all experienced bad experience, you know, user experiences where it's frustrating, whether it's on the screen uh, or in, in the physical. And uh, so it's really about trying to, to foresee that, uh, those challenges and design to improve them. Can you, can, can you speak to like, what, what are the typical tools kind of in the tool belt of doing that well? So traditionally, it was uh, we would start just making prototypes, making mock-ups. So physical, whether it was clay, you know, the car, the car studio mm-hmm. clay would would help you touch and feel and really get a sense in person of what the car might become. It's the same with the interior. So you could see a picture of an interior, but it's usually distorted. So to really sit in a car and see and touch where things are, that was always really fascinating to me because you could. You could really see the thinking behind why is that button there? Why is that screen or gauge where it is? Uh, and it starts to really inform all these subtle, subtle things start to inform if you if you really feel comfortable or if you feel uh, you feel like it was well thought out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd start physical um, traditionally, and it's really hard to to replace that. But with digital tools. Um, you can both rapidly prototype, so you can 3D print dashboards and seats really quickly. Um, seats are kind of, since I started there, they're kind of a trade. It's 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 an it's an old trade, right? To to uh, to trim and to uh, to outfit the seats, both with the foam and 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 the pattern. So that was something you really couldn't mock up. You you had to you had to get someone with that craft to produce it produce your design and then really feel how it, how it is to sit in it. Uh, but today it's kind of a, we've kind of hybridized these tools. So we'll use digital tools really early on, like Autodesk CAD, um, to, to mock it up quickly. Uh, and then VR can be a layer on top of that. Uh, we did a lot of this at Volkswagen group. We had really talented video game designers and software engineers that could take a concept we made and really give it high fidelity really quickly. So something you could, you know, you you can you can judge a design and critique a design aesthetically from visuals. Um, but when you have screens and and other haptics and ambient things happening to inform the driver, uh, that's something you kind of need another layer on top. Um, so we helped build out a virtual reality department that would uh, that would allow us not only to jump in that experience and test it really quick but also send that experience overseas, like back to Germany so that the, uh, the stakeholders or the, the product product leads could sit in it and experience it. So mm-hmm. it's both, both an efficiency of, of the trade as well as of the process to kind of go through and say, Oh, what if we grabbed this and pushed it over here? Or what if this was closer or how does an ambient alert look? Um, Cause that's a big thing we were trying to, uh, to advocate for was, moving away from the screen and using supplemental design to, to replace, you know, a very distracting sometimes object, right. Is can, can you keep your eyes on the road and get a, get an ambient alert maybe with ambient lighting or something like that, or a heads up display instead. Yeah. And this is, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a silly 
anecdote or, or personal situation, but like one of the frustrations I've I've had just personally driving different vehicles is like, yeah, digital dis, digital displays make a lot of sense at the same time. Like, I really like having knobs and buttons for most of what I'm going to do, and then use, utilizing the display for the few things that make sense, like having a map or or whatever, like something that's providing output to me. And it, it seems it seems like there are different theories in the industry or there are, or maybe, maybe it's even that there are different vehicles that are appealing mm-hmm. to different type of people. Right. Cause there are, there are different stuff. Like, can you, can you speak to like, how, how does, how did this transition take place? Like digital screens and displays. This is an exciting new technology. I think I imagine everyone's excited to get it in and have all these cool features mm-hmm. that can be shown. But then the next iteration is like, no, what's actually best for the driver and the right type of driver? And what's the right combination of digital and analog to share the information that we need? Like, can you speak from your experience? How, how does the process like this actually go? Yeah, that's, that's a great challenge. And I think it's all about balance and what are the principles of the particular brand that uh that's implementing it so for example um i mean touch screens were uh something that that the industry was chasing for a while uh and in the last 10 years since they've kind of become commonplace uh it was it, it's kind of it's usually a rush to implement technology and then different different brands have different i guess speed at which they implement right so there are, some are a little bit more cautious, some are a little bit more aggressive. We can all, you know, imagine those examples right now. Um, but th- but really, it's about the what what is the the key driver of putting in a touchscreen? Is it to save costs on making buttons? Is it to add features like more in depth maps, uh, more menus? Um, and what we try to avoid is is just becoming purely feature driven. Uh, because that can really crowd the experience. I mean, if you've ever had the 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 frustration of trying to adjust something that's three menus in, mm. or you know, find the defrost and it's not there, right? That's something you need instantly, and so you don't want to have to go swipe or click through things. Um, so I feel that the balance of that analog digital, uh, those that did that really served well. Um, when we worked with Porsche, that was a brand that's very built on analog experience, right? So they love that you have a manual shifter. Uh, they love having a round steering wheel with buttons, you know, only for performance, right? And there, there's that drove that brand to be a little bit more methodical and balanced in the approach. Um, whereas Audi, for example, is all about tech first. So um, so we had something like three or four different types of screens. We had a haptic screen. We'd have a, a high definition screen in the cluster. Um, and they wanted to move completely away from buttons. So I think the market's kind of spoken and people have spoke, you know, have reacted to this. And so the balance is kind of coming back. Um, and I think that's, that's just the learning curve of, uh, of doing this, of being, you know, if you're going to be bold and, and do something really out there, uh, you have to be, we'd have to be prepared to face the, the challenges and the, the, the criticism and the pushback. Uh, and we surely did it, you know, internally as well. So uh, mm-hmm. there was a lot of, a lot of meetings about where do things go and why. And if we're doing something, let's not do it in, you know, gimmicky. Let's do it for for the right reason, um, and go from there. 
Yeah, and I don't know how to necessarily ask a clean question here, but the, around this this topic, the the idea of both intuition and then also the ability to predict how culture is going to change seems like it's it's core. At the, and I think of you know I, I don't know I get back to my marketing business development example. I was writing a proposal mm-hmm. earlier, and I had information that I need to portray to this given customer and like my initial reaction is like hey what's the best way for me to put this information together and then i do that and then i have to zoom out and be like no this doesn't make any sense i need to put myself in my customer's shoe and try to understand how do they actually want to receive this information so like that seems like the the base level back to the ux experience of like no you can't think from a feature perspective of how are you going to show off all this cool technology you have you have to think how are we actually going to serve the needs of the customer whatever those might be but it goes even beyond that in that like I don't think of like the the introduction now of assisted and automated driving or electrification a few years ago, right? And like the the, the Porsche Taycan, for example, right? And, and EV, seem, their first plunge into EV makes a ton of sense. They go kind of overboard and like it's spaceship feeling. And like when you take mm-hmm. off, you have all this, I don't know, it sounds like you're taking off in like a Star Wars, <laughs> like it, all, all this noise added in, which I don't know, maybe that's where the industry is going to stay long-term and that's what people want, but that feels like something of like, no, this is a plunge into a new technology that then we're going to come back to a, a, uh, maybe a, a smoother landing spot five, 10 years from now. And like, how do you think about as technology trends change and as you're introducing new technology, trying to build something that plays to the today's need of your industry, but also ideally is a timeless feature and approach that's going to serve beyond the, the launch of the vehicle. Yeah, that's a really critical that's a really critical thing to to manage in our field, uh, and and I feel it's a it's kind of a philosophical discussion as much as anything. So there's there's the philosophy of you know technophile, anything that comes in new is great automatically, um, and then there's the you know more of a luddite perspective, which is like no, which things shouldn't change ever, and every time they change, they get you know it's harder. Um, we're seeing that with AI, we're seeing that with electrification, right? There's this, there's kind of these two camps. Um, and my philosophy is always to see the, I, I want to try to see the, the value in both, right? Because there are truths to doing things the older way. And there are truths to the inevitabilities of technology progressing, right? So with, uh, with digitization, I'll say in general, right? Electro, electro, Electric cars, automation, um, it, it's, it's always interesting when you see you know, the headlines that are claiming to know when this stuff is happening. Oh, by 2020, everybody will live in a city and nobody will own anything and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, maybe, maybe, but there's also, you know, there's going to be variables to these predictions. Like not everybody's going to opt uh, to have a car that just treats them like a taxi. Some people have different needs than others. Um, so it's not to say, you know, one is, one is not happening before the other. Um, but taking this philosophy into very technical meetings, uh, is, is a bit of the, it's a bit of the job description. I would say is, is to honor, you know, what do people need in different variables? And that's why we do extensive user research, right. To, to see, uh, to, to put ourselves in the shoes of the person we're designing for. Um, and then also it's our job to not always think that they might not know, they might not always know what's best, right? They, they know consumers know what exists currently. 
um, and they have opinions about that. But when you show them something that could be an improvement to that, uh, you know, something that could help their, their daily life, um, they often might not even know that they need that. So it's, it's our job to deliver these things, uh, gracefully and to not rush into, not rush into them. Um, I think in the portion, in the, the, the case of the Tycon, um, it was definitely a, an answer to Tesla, right? It mm-hmm. was a, okay, well, this is, you know, Tesla can, can, it was kind of an iPhone moment, right? And it, it seemed like, well, that's, that's now that's it. That's how cars are going to be. Um, but philosophically and culturally, uh, German car manufacturers have a different approach to a, a more cautious approach and a more, I would say, focused approach on what does a fast electric car need to do, you know, um, how much of that is handling and then weight, how much of that is just pure brute force speed (laughs) and how much of it is, uh, is, is design and, and, you know, appreciating the drive. Right. So Mm -hmm. they really didn't want to dull the experience by making it, um, so neutral, right. It had to have a character, Uh, And I think that's, so that trickles into user experience and automation where um, we'd have discussions where people at a car company are saying, wait, why, why would anyone buy a different brand car when they're all fast, right? And they're all electric when they're all driving themselves. Um, But if you know cars, you know that they all have different character. They all have different, they all drive a little bit differently. And that's what, why someone would buy a Porsche over you know, a, another sports car. Mm-hmm. Um, so keeping that character alive, uh, we, we would do, so in that same process flow, we would have virtual reality testing where we'd see what does an autonomous experience look like for each brand, right? So what does, how does a Porsche, the transition from driving to automation or automated system, what does that look like? Um, whereas in an Audi, it might be more magical and seamless. I mean, in a Porsche, it's more of an event, right? It's mm-hmm. more like, ah, oh, I'm getting back to driving. So we developed HMI and, uh, and, and interior ergonomics that were more familiar to that brand um, as opposed to just a blank dashboard, <laughs> right? Yeah. You want to honor the past while embracing the future at the same time. Yeah, and this is nearly an endlessly fascinating topic, and like thinking of a brand character. And one of the, I don't, and I I know you already mentioned Toyota, but they they come to my mind frequently in both the electrification and the automation space. So, I mean, electrification, they've taken a stance of, for for various reasons, that, hey, we're going to do what they say is best, which is hybridization as well as hydrogen fuel cells. But back to the the kind of the, assisted and automated driving. So I, I had uh, Derek Caveney there um, who, who's leading this act- activity on podcast uh, last year or sometime. And he talks, you know, very different to Tesla, whereas when you go into autopilot, it's this magical experience of the car drives itself. Toyota, they're going for the experience of, no, we are, this car is supporting me to become a better driver. And that's a, mm-hmm. It's very different yeah it's a partner exactly so that's a yeah. very different experience and then through that you need to be very different you may need to be very intentional in the design decisions you're making of how you actually put that into practice yeah yeah that's a very it's that's worth noting is that a these you know different cultures different 
different uh, organizations have different approaches for different reasons, right? Um, and it's it goes back to that assumptive thinking that because the car or let's just say the product is more connected now and smarter, um, that we should just let it do everything or, or we should just assume that it will uh, do everything for us. Um, and yeah, this kind of transitions into the sustainable topic, mm-hmm. uh, which is very interesting to me now. Um, so throughout throughout my time at these OEMs, and, and I'm glad to now be, I, I currently work for Stanley Black & Decker uh, on the UX uh, UX team. We lead digital product creation there. Um, I can't mention much about that other than it's exciting with what's coming down the line, but it's a completely different demographic, right? We're, we're, we're looking at do-it-yourselfers or, um, or construction companies. Um, those are our, our main consumers. Um, but to also be out of automotive now, I can kind of share these, these insights that, um, that I've learned. And one of them is, is definitely rooted in, in the philosophy. Um, so since you brought up Toyota, right? I, I had always been more of a European car fan, uh, growing up and like just knew, Oh, the Japanese, they make just really good, reliable cars. And they helped us get more efficient as a country, right? In the seventies <laughs> and eighties, the small car movement, efficient cars, Kaizen model, right? Making things on time, the, the just in time system, um, it wasn't until I really got there and got immersed that I really understood it, um, because these this is a this is a country. This th- these people live on an island, right? And throughout history, they've had to be very sustainable. They've had to be very efficient with their materials, their processes, um, and that seeps into the cars as well. Um, and so, noticing why that is the way it is, and the rest of the industry kind of took notice and adopted that. Um, I think today the fact that they are still hesitant on, on electrification and even with the new CEO, it's a, it may be a transition to being more aggressive, but it doesn't mean that, um, that they're all in. Right. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that most automakers, despite what they might uh, advertise, they, they are, they have a very, uh, agnostic view in a lot of cases towards what they're trying to bet on with the future. And, and there's good reason for that. We have a whole built system, a whole built infrastructure for making things that burn fossil fuels. And uh, and the efficiencies there have gotten better over time, right? So to assume that that just all stops and now we're suddenly, we suddenly have infinite batteries and and everybody can suddenly plug in. Um, it would be that would be a I would say a foolish assumption. We can make great strides in electrification, and we are, and we will continue to. Um, but I think designing for that unpredictability is going to be the real is going to be the key distinguisher in the future for for the next decade uh, of mm-hmm. how these companies sell cars. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's a lot to get in there. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, noticing, noticing these things, right. As they come across the news, it's another, it's another one of those assumptive prophecies, right? Like when will automation come? When will full electrification come? And it's, I don't think it's any one person, no matter how smart they are. Uh, it's no one's, no one's able to say, oh, it's going to happen by here. Um, the smartest move is to say, we don't know yet. We have to be agile. Uh, mm-hmm. And in order to be agile, 
here's how we produce things differently. Yeah. And I think you, you touched on several of these things, but kind of three of the foundational beliefs that I've formed around electrification is what electrification in general is coming and it's a very positive thing having battery having electric motors as the final drive for various systems i we're not in place right now that we could have every single vehicle battery electric and i'm not even sure that would be optimal right now and also i don't know if it will be optimal ever i mean there there might be time i mean depending on how other form i mean potentially hydrogen in some cases but even the internal combustion engine in terms of uh yeah whether it's full electric full hybrid or plug-in hybrid or or whatever like there's a lot of good work being done to decarbonize including an internal combustion engine and ultimately the the foundational belief is like you were saying like i don't know what the future is going to look like and in in times of uncertainty making a bet on a single anything is not a good idea so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we, yeah, there, there's always someone, whether it's at a big company or in a garage somewhere that's working on something else, right? And mm-hmm. I, you kind of got a, a hint of this with Porsche's e-fuels, right? This has been kind of building slowly. I think making a carbon neutral fuel that burns in a normal engine, um, if it's proven to be uh, cost effective, I think last year it was something like 100 plus bucks a gallon. Now it's down to 40 something. I mean, at that rate, right, it could be cost competitive one day. And so if you're saying, well, it has no tailpipe carbon emissions and it's, uh, it's neutral to produce, um, the, the other, you know, that, that's, a, that's a viable source. Um, and then hydrogen, I don't know if in a, its current form it really struggles, right? But mm. it will continue to evolve as well because there's investment there. Um, I really believe that we don't, we, we, there's always something, the only thing we can, we can accurately say is technology will improve, right? It will keep getting better. And, uh, and so designing for a plethora of technologies or multiple technologies to thrive, uh, I think is really the most responsible thing to do. Um, and you also have the, the cumulative effect. Um, so doing, doing this study, uh, started this study a couple of years ago where, um, you started to see the the resto mod movement, right? Uh, we'll convert your car to modern, and then we'll convert it to electric. Uh, I think that's gaining traction because uh, if you realize, if you look at it, you know, in terms of numbers, the the amount of cars on the road today, right? It's it's over a billion. I think it's like one point two billion, and it's projected to be over two billion cars on the road in the next decade, right? With developing countries like India you know, China, it, it, it the, the amount of cars that we're still making the old way will still be there for the foreseeable future. And so even if every single person bought an electric car for their new car, uh, mm-hmm. in the next coming years, um, whether by mandate or by, op, by, by personal choice, um, you're still looking at a fraction of the usable cars on the road, uh, to, to a cleaner, let's say more sustainable electric, uh, herd, or fleet. <laughs> I call them a herd because it is a natural thing, right? You have this, you've made this thing that can consume, uh, it can, it lives, it has a life cycle, uh, and then it's, it dies and then you phase it out. Um, so taking care of the herd that exists now is just as important as selling the next generation. Um, and with that type of thinking, it's really, it really presses us to be more, uh, more creative in solving that, uh, because, 
one of the most wasteful things we can do is to make a product <laughs> and then get rid of it really soon, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of we're we're exiting the age of planned obsolescence where companies are banking on making things in mass more every year and then encouraging you to buy the new one. Um, the story is shifting the from a from a consumer based throwaway culture to keep something longer. And this is on I, I believe this is this serves all ends of the spectrum, right? This serves people that that really do still use internal combustion cars. Uh, and, and find them indispensable, right? If you're in utility work or uh, you need you need the features that they offer, right? Um, and you 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 like honoring that system that exists uh, is is sustainable as well because um, otherwise you you isolate you know you isolate people. You're saying, oh well, you're you're in the obsolete camp and and now everything's going to change and it's going to change overnight. Uh, I believe it will change quick. Some say not quick enough. Others say too, you know, too quick, but, uh, but yeah, I I think automakers do know this uh, and that's their biggest challenge right now. Um, You know, recent reports on, on how many, there's only a few electric cars that make a profit right now. And, uh, and most are struggling. So, it, that's not a, that's not a, an, that's not a silver bullet. It's not a, it's not completely, you know, sold yet. So. Yeah. And, and I'd be curious from, from your, from a design perspective to get your thoughts of like, so what what are the foundations of doing this from a sustainable, sustainable perspective? So, so, I mean, there's, there's a wide, wide range of things that come to mind. It's one, I mean, life cycle, right? You need to build something that is going to be around for a long time in a uncertain future, an uncertain future, Right. And like what, what, what goes into doing this well? And, and also realizing the fact that, right, there are limited resources, right? So if we, if we did want to sell a hundred percent battery electric vehicles right now, we, we just don't have the battery materials to, to do it. Right. So like we need to be yeah. intentional and we need to be, um, we need to preserve and yeah, use the vehicle or the, use these limited materials in an efficient, effective way. Like what, what, what do you think of when you, think of sustainable design during this transition period? What, what are the core kind of foundational principles? So I think the first thing to touch on there is the resources aspect. So in, I think it was the seventies, um, there was a paper published a book called limits to growth. And it was in part funded by the Volkswagen group. It, It was a, it was a look into how does, how do we consume resources through the end of the century? And a lot of the predictions, I mean, this gets back to the assumptive, you know, the negative aspects of assuming, um, with current models at the time, they predicted us to run out of resources by the year 2000. And it was going to be famine and war and all this. What the, the models didn't account for were the evolution, the progress of technology in safely and, and responsibly getting resources. So our techniques to get more resources has gotten better. Uh, and I think the same is going to happen with batteries right now. It's a, it's kind of a dirty process, right. To mine for batteries. So we're going through that right now. Like oil has gotten, you know, aside from the, the unfortunate accidents, it is one of the most regulated and, and ne- it has to be a clean process, right? Um, we're going to go through the same thing with, uh, with batteries and, and battery production. So I'm not as concerned there. Um, and then also worth noting, right, we, we did, you know, similarly around turn of the century, 
there were predictions that we're going to run out of oil. And that was proven, you know, by, by 2010, right. But that, that was proven off by the current models. So what that informs us is that there's a, it's not to be cocky and say, oh, we'll always have stuff. We, we do have to be very conscious and very, uh, very responsible with our resource utilization. So because of that, because we have to be more responsible with each iron ore and, and lithium we take out, you know, uh, then we, then the next principle that we have to abide by into your question on design, we have to design for longevity, right? So we have to design for the resources we are using to go as far as possible. And so long, when you start to think for longevity, uh, that trickles into everything from making something updatable uh, and making a an incentivizing the ownership process and the ownership life cycle to be to be fruitful for both the manufacturer and the consumer. Right? I mean, good example: the average high end car, the car, the cars with the most tech, right? They see the most depreciation. If you buy a hundred thousand dollar executive sedan that car will be worth 20 grand in five to 10 years, right? So you've got a huge depreciation problem that, uh, and that's due to their complexity, right? Things break when they're more complex. Um, but it's also a, a, a mindset of the manufacturer, of the design and of the consumer, right? That, that class generally doesn't care if they get a new car every two years, they might lease it, right? So that system isn't designed to encourage longevity, it's kind of it's designed to encourage turnover, and as a manufacturer, you're you're totally fine with that, right? Come come get the new model. And look, we you know GM kind of pioneered this in, in the in, I think it was the Lowy era, right? Where it was like we're not going to sell more cars if they don't change stylistically every couple of years. If we don't give them new colors, the color of the year, right, changes. And so this goes back a long way where we have been incentivized to get the new thing. Uh, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? It is, it does help progress. It helps, uh, keep the, the companies profitable. Um, so, so how do we design for that? Well, can we design, uh, we we've designed, you know, for software updatability. So your interface might change. You could, you could option up, um, things and that's with mixed re- received with mixed review, right? The, the famous, the infamous BMW, you know, paying for heated seat subscription, um, mm-hmm. that I think is the lowest fruit version of that, right? Like let's monetize other ways. And what they're just trying to do is say, instead of selling more volume, can we make money on old cars through the software? So fair enough. Um, but I think that's kind of just the, the entry point. Um, if the system designed for hardware updatability as well, um, then that becomes a whole new ball game. That becomes something where your car isn't just, uh, the software isn't just improving. Um, you're actually improving the relevance of the functionality of the vehicle, right? So it could have a bigger hard drive over time. Um, it could have a, uh, it, it could have room for sensors for autonomous driving, you know, so planning for that type of upfitability, uh, we're starting to see a little bit of that trickle in. Um, but I, I believe it can go further. I believe it can go into a holistic approach where um, if you design for full life cycle updatability of a vehicle, right? You can, can we design for the platforms to be updatable? It, it goes back to that bet that they have to place, 
right? If you're placing a bet on what does your product portfolio look like? We're going to put this many billion into the electric, this many billion into the pickup trucks, this many, right? Um, what if each one of those vehicles could be what it needs to be depending on the market in time, right? It completely changes how we're making the vehicles, selling them and maintaining them over time. And I think that mentality uh, it drives design, it drives marketing, it can drive uh, the sustainability score as well. Um, because after a car's warranty runs out, there's really no incentive for them to uh, to make it last longer, right? It's It yep. was a selling point back in the day, you know, like, oh, your pickup truck will last forever. Uh, but now it's it's a controversial thing because if you make an internal combustion car last really long time, um, when it's in 10 years, uh, do we still want it to be around, right? Like, it, it should, should we encourage it to – there's two schools of thought. Should we encourage it to turn over quicker and, and then, you know, decompose it? <laughs> uh, or should we build something that lasts for generations? And when you do that, um, you have to plan for it to be updatable, Um and that there's a there's a there's many different ways to do that. Yeah, and that's actually so I have two places I want to dig deeper, and that's one of them. So the, this idea of yep. planning to be updated, well, how do you do this in a way that actually makes sense from a short term and long term financial perspective? Right. So I assume there's some inefficiency that needs to be baked into the product today if you're going to plan for a future state and you're not fully able to optimize for exactly what you think today. Like how do, how do you approach that in a way that, you know, financially allows you to close a business case? So initially, um, it's looking at the costs of, of production and which parts would have to be updatable, right? So, so, okay. The brief on the one end is how do we make money uh, on a product that's already out in existence, right? Uh, a very complex product. So, um, to most, they think, well, that's aftermarket, right? That's, that's just adding stuff to a car or modifying it post. Um, some of the some of the biggest aftermarket uh, industries are based on off road vehicles, right? Like the Wrangler, everything is screwed together. You could unscrew it at home and update the car, and over time, do it at your own discretion. But if you're a manufacturer, if you're an OEM doing this, um, it starts with that. It starts with being open to these alternative monetization routes. Um, so they could bring it back to the dealer and hardware update. And then second, um, it's looking at where things are not able to be unscrewed or taken apart easily. So currently, the design design of vehicles to be kind of sealed units, you know, kind of closed source, uh, limits them from doing this. LCD screens that are glued together, right, instead mm -hmm. of hardware, you know, with, with, with hardware assembled. Um, High wear items like seats and door panels, they're all very seamless. Uh, they're all very, you know, they're not meant to be taken in and out over the life easily, right? It's done at the factory and that's it. Um, so you're kind of committing the product to a certain, a certain life cycle there. Uh, but by opening certain aspects to be updatable, um, you open it to, uh, to that alternative monetization. You're, you're giving, you're giving the manufacturer an easier route to uh, incentivize users to spend money on the car later in life. Uh, and then 
I think it's a, it's also a marketing principle, right? Uh, I use, I often use an example of Patagonia where Patagonia had this brilliant campaign a couple of years ago and they are very, a very outdoor sustainable minded demographic mm-hmm. already. But what they did was in business terms was genius because they said, bring in our old, bring in your old clothes, right? Bring in your old Patagonia jacket, your old Patagonia. They had to be Patagonia stuff, but bring them in. We'll, we each store or a pilot number of stores will have a, a, a repair facility in the store. And so you can come in, uh, pay us some money and we will fix your jacket for us, for you, right? Instead of buying a new jacket. I think the campaign was don't buy a new jacket. Um, and then guess what? Everybody loved that so much when they're in the store, they bought more products, right? So the company made more money by just having good virtue, um, authentic virtue, right? Where they, uh, I think after transportation, textiles and, and, uh, and, and fashion is one of the most highest consuming mm-hmm. and, and impactful industries, right? The dye process and people throw away clothes like it's nothing. So that approach is a great it's a great example uh, of of how it can also benefit the bottom line and make make the company more money by in in you know inspiring trust that they're doing the right thing and then putting their money where their mouth is and providing the services for that to happen yeah i think that philosophically makes sense i think there's a a good uh business kind of I don't know. It, it, take, it takes long, long-term vision, right? And it takes someone who's willing to, because it will, I have to imagine it's going to be marginally more expensive up front. Like there, there's a reason that cars have okay. gone to, a, there's a reason LED screens are, you know, glued together. And there's a reason that certain things are not optimized for serviceability right now, probably because it's cheaper to build it. Just assuming mm-hmm. that, you know, the, it's cheaper to build an electric vehicle right now, assuming that the vehicle's totaled as soon as the battery gets a little nick in it, right? And mm-hmm. that's very far from sustainable, though. So it, it takes it takes another level of kind of long-term thinking and strategic thinking to say, well, no, we're, we're going to allocate some effort as well as some some cost out here up front to invest in something that yeah, maybe serves the brand for long-term and then also serves for these these future revenue paths. Yeah, it. I mean, it's kind of like the the risk of being wrong is just as high as the risk of doing the right thing, right? So if if you've invested a ton in making new products, um, you're also at risk of them not selling, right? So why not invest that in a more long term solution where the risk is lower? Um, mm-hmm. And and automakers, you know, they do they've done this historically really well modular design in the industry is, is everything in the industry, right? One platform can fit different hats. Um, you can buy an F-150 base, 20 grand, or you can buy a Raptor for 80 grand. It's the, it's the same bones underneath. <laughs> They've mm-hmm. just scaled it and added features, right? Um, I think if you extend that modularity to the consumer and have restraint as well. So it, it, from a design perspective, it's it's about designing for purpose rather than style, right? So does something longevity means something ages well, right? Not just functionally, but stylistically. And by principle, the more stylized something is, the quicker it goes out of out of style, right? Yeah, like, I mean, we, we don't have to look further than like the BMW i3 example. I think <laughs> yeah. it summarizes a lot of these things, right? Where like that was a dedicated platform, big bet that was placed that this was what people wanted in the plunge to electrification and 
was not the case. <laughs> exactly. And that's a great car. Um, if it had been built with the ethos of, um, of more, I think more long-term, like <laughs> giving it a more long-term iconic shape, I think it's a big challenge as, as a car designer to design something impactful and, and striking, but also something somewhat timeless. I mean, if you think of timeless vehicles, uh, you know, the, the Toyota Land Cruiser, the Porsche 911, the Jeep Wrangler, uh, timeless sedans, our old Mercedes, right? They're very simple. They're very simple lines. And the 911, as an example, didn't change for 30 something years, right? It was the same, the same, you know, it wasn't true monocoque, but it was the same chassis and they updated bumpers and face and but but you could make a 1998 look like a 1968 right yeah. <laughs> and and that and ironically Porsche is one of the most sustainable brands for that because their cars have kept value they've kept relevance and most of them are still on the road right so they can claim each impact of one is of making one is getting stretched very very yeah. far and and so I, I think that's an ethos really needs to be adapted these days where um, it's not just how it is underneath. It's, it's how it works with the exterior and the interior um, to produce something that is, it's more cost-effective too, right? It's, you don't have to redesign that thing every, every five years. The BMW I, if BMW's current form language doesn't sell, which we're still seeing, right? Then they have to go redesign a whole new line and that costs billions Mm -hmm. of dollars. Uh, instead of evolution, where you can evolve the technical aspects and the style, um, but just plan for that a bit. And how do you, and maybe just quick, quick touch on this, like, how, how do you then protect against the other side where, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen like the, the graphics of like, every car company has the same family SUV, <laughs> essentially, like, oh, if, you, yeah. if you put a, a, a white version of them in a line, then you, you essentially have the same vehicle made by everyone. Like, and I mean, that's, that's, that's got to give um, designers a headache. I mean, I don't love going and seeing every vehicle look the exact same. Or like, how how do you how do you then avoid and have some, I don't know, some feel, some character, while also not making this huge bet that's not going to pay off? Uh, well, I think it it comes down to simpler lines that are more unique and more iconic. Um, there are, and, and that's the tough, as I say this, right, all my car design friends, it's, it's one of the hardest things to do mm-hmm. because you're facing, you typically you're given a platform, first of all, which says, hey, take this, you know, uh, Fiat and make it into a Jeep. <laughs> and you're like, okay. So it just, it, it's, it's already kind of a blob to begin with. And then you just got to put different features on it. So it's the limitations of, uh, of, of design input, right? They sometimes were handed things later, whereas before, it w- the designer was right there with you know executives saying here's the vision. Um, now it's a, it's a design by committee. Typically, it's like well we need something that fits you know fits most people and can carry some stuff and maybe has all wheel drive and maybe there's a hybrid and maybe and oh it's also like got to be this. Pr- and by the way, uh, um, it's it's uh, yeah it's got to be this affordable and and so we're already starting with a rough silhouette before we've even put pen to paper. And, mm-hmm. and that, I think, is just due to how the industry sees them as products. I had a, a design professor that, you know, he hated that word. We were looking at cars like products. They're going to end up becoming products. 
And then you're going to end up with that, that meme, that graphic, which is they all look the same. And then there's just a little bit difference in the brand and the price point. Um, so I think the next shift is going to come when we separate uh, the footprint of the vehicle, the platform of the vehicle from that core body shape. So that core body, um, it's, it's getting more and more, uh, it's the, the functionality of what the the body of the vehicle is doing is becoming a a Swiss army knife. It's got to fit everybody. That's where crossovers came from, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you want a good position, seat position. You want, uh, be able to fit everything, um, shorter overhangs, right? So it looks aggressive, but in the end, it's kind of like averaging of all things. The only real differentiator is what's going on with the platform is, is it front wheel drive or rear wheel drive? Is it hybrid gas electric? Um, and this, this transition, this transfer from, um, from, from simple shared package drawing to optimizing platforms and then keeping one part modular, uh, the bones of the vehicle, so to speak. That's what I believe is going to be it, it, the differentiator in both sustainability as well as a, it'll it'll create a whole new design language. It'll create a whole new way of how we look at cars, um, having this core cabin and then unlimited platforms underneath it. So just right there, um, I think those iconic cars we listed, like the 911, the, the Wrangler, you know, they, they all are based on what they function as, right? And right now we live in a world where you can get every different type of functional car you want. You can get a hyper-focused utility vehicle or you can get hyper-efficient. Um, but I believe that will change when, uh, when we design cars for updatability and for platform uh, swappability. Yeah, thanks. And I, I know there's a ton further we can discuss, and I feel like we're just scratching the surface here. But this, this has been a lot of fun. I think really appreciate getting your your perspective on yeah these topics. Where I think tie tie together nicely, very timely as we're going through this this shift into more automated, more electrified platforms of many different types. So, Christian, I I really appreciate it. Thanks thanks for joining, and uh, yeah, I wish you the best of luck in your your future endeavors. Thank you, Brandon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Well, there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Christian Delise. So what stands out to me, one, the intentionality that needs to go into crafting a user experience that works for them for the specific application and how challenging that can be when you have I don't know, introducing new technology and you're trying to enhance that experience, right? The, the goal of technology is not to introduce the new technology. It's to, to somehow make a meaningful, positive impact on whoever you're serving. And the way in which the users interact with that technology is a huge piece of that, right? It's it's not simply to have the developers or who, whoever has developed the technology have the technology come across as they envision it, but it's figure out what what the user, the end user really wants and how can this potential technology solution better serve that need. And the way uh, Christian speaks about this really interesting to me. I mean, it aligns well with how I think about marketing and business development and business building overall, right? Like 
overall the, the the goal of being in business is not to build a business it's to make do something valuable to have an impact and to serve someone in in, in some way and so that lens that Christian repeatedly talk about here really interesting besides that the sustainability piece which we just scratched the surface on also really interesting i'm excited to to see how he's thinking about this and how uh how, how this might evolve in the future so yeah fun fun discussion from my, from my perspective cool to be able to branch out to a different area um that i, I haven't touched on too much on the, the future mobility podcast and um, really appreciate you listening as always so until next time more to come next week Thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. If you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast.